Hello, this is Jeffrey Holder over beautiful WOR Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you very much for your fabulous letters last week in reference to the show with Eartha Kitt. I enjoyed it very much myself. I enjoyed doing it because it's a fabulous, really great lady. And this tonight is our usual request programs, and we have some beautiful ones. Alice Faye, Bobby Breen, Kenny Baker, Ray Charles, goes way back. But to start off, we have a request for the free design singing, You Could Be Born Again. If you're of a certain age, you may know that voice from the crisp and clean No Caffeine 7-Up commercials, or as the villain in the James Bond movie Live and Let Die, or you may know him as the narrator of Tim Burton's reimagining of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I know that voice and that actor from the 1980s film version of Annie. He is Jeffrey Holder, a truly trailblazing, multi-hyphenated artist. He could dance, choreograph, direct, paint, sing, and act. He directed the Broadway production of The Wiz and won two Tony Awards for his work. The expensive archives of Holder and his wife, the dancer, choreographer, and professor, Carmen de Lavalade, were acquired by Rose Library in 2018. In today's episode, Anika Austin, visiting archivist for the Jeffrey Holder and Carmen de Lavalade papers, speaks with Holder's son, Leo Holder, about his father's decades-long artistic career. I'm your host, Lolita Rowe, the Community Outreach Archivist at Emory University Library's Stuart A. Rose Manuscript, Archives, and Rare Book Library, and you are listening to Rose Library Presents Behind the Archives. Actually, Leo, can you tell me more about yourself and your relationship to the collection? My relation to the collection is it's mine. I lived with it my entire life. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've carried it <laughs> on my shoulders, literally. In preparing the collection for transfer to Emory, interesting things happen. Even though I've lived with something as long as I've lived with it, I, there's still surprises to be had. And... I you know I knew Jeffrey kept everything but I didn't realize Jeffrey kept everything. <laughs> and what had happened was they were living in this 5000 square foot loft in Soho in New York City. By the time they left there was very little space that was walkable and it's all consumed by art and artifacts and papers and vinyl. I actually work in the movie and TV business, and I was doing very well one year. And strangely enough, through the generosity of Chris Rock, who, who gave me a wonderful job, 
uh, I had a nice little windfall and I bought a piece of land upstate to which Jeffrey automatically said, oh, great. Now you can build a museum to me, (laughs) (laughs) to which I said no, (laughs) and for which I am currently regretting it because he was actually right. (laughs) That said, when we moved out of the loft and at this point it was basically up to me to move everything. And I literally had to drive the first few trucks worth of stuff out just for the movers to come in to make an appraisal of how much it was going to cost to move everything else. That said, we discovered things that Jeffrey had hiding places or storage places for everything in this 5,000 square foot loft. So there were things that were hidden that nobody realized was there. Literally trunks of costumes that had not seen the light of day in 50 years or, or, or whatever. And when we started going through the papers in preparation for Emery and again Thanks to the wonderful guidance of Pelham McDaniels, may he rest in peace. And he and I were the kind of people who could finish each other's sentences. So he understood and I understood and we both understood this collection. He was able to, in a way, guide me towards looking for things that all of a sudden, you know, I uh, discovered this treasure trove of stuff that for all intents and purposes I had lived with all my life but I still did not know a lot of things existed and so this whole project has been uh, you know kind of an eye-opener for me as well because when I say Jeffrey saved everything uh, you've heard me say this before for every good review there's also a disconnect notice or an unemployment uh, ticket or or something like that he was literally illustrating his own he was he he was literally creating his own story and step by step was able to uh, document everything from letters and drafts of articles he wrote for magazines to whatever. When this was all happening, I remember at one point a TV show did this article on my mother when she was about to receive the Kennedy Center honors. While we were in a holding pattern waiting for the interview to start, one of the crew, in seeing all these things around me, all these books, Jeffrey, the the library that Jeffrey had, you know, would rival anybody's. And it took forever to be able to dismantle it. But here we were among all these books, and somebody from the crew said, did your parents make you read these things? And <laughs> which, which, which I thought, what a strange question, <laughs> in which if you put a child in a room with all these books, and they're all art books, and they're all cultural books. It's not like books on, you know, on accounting or (laughs) or philosophy. But if they are art books, the child is going to automatically go into them and look at them and read them. What a strange question. And 
you know, one thing I have with a lot of of these types of interviews is it, 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 it lends itself to what I refer to as lazy journalism. It's the easiest thing in the world for somebody to ask the first question, and it's usually a stupid question. What was it like living with all of this stuff? It mm-hmm. was normal. Yeah. <laughs> we woke up in the morning. You know, we had breakfast, whatever. When a bee lies sleeping in the palm of your hand. That makes me think of that question being specifically about music and the LPs that were in the house and the range of music that Jeffrey collected. And, and how that influenced his art making and how that influenced the way that he saw the world because it came from his upbringing and it came from everything that he collected throughout, like his travels to Paris, his feeling of being at home in Paris, his new home in New York. Can you talk about how music influenced his life, his work, and, you know, of course, subsequently your life? Yes. Well, I, I guess all credit goes to my grandfather, Jeffrey's father, wonderful man, complex man, simple man, who was the youngest of his family. And you have to understand that my grandfather's generation, especially living on a colonial island, his day was one or two steps short of Dickensian, if I could, if I could use that term dramatically, in the sense that you know, living under colonial rule to begin with is somewhat of a challenge. And navigating all of that, there is a hierarchical system, a societal hierarchical system at that. So it's not like anybody was particularly well off. He had five children, yet he still found it necessary to buy a piano. The house that they lived in is barely bigger than the combination of my current dining room and living room. Mm. A very, very small house on Richmond Street in Port of Spain, Trinidad. It's long gone now, but it literally it was the size of maybe my two rooms, and then there was a very small courtyard in the back, and... Outside of that was where the, the, the outhouse was. It was literally, you know, not exactly a wooden shack, but it wasn't, it wasn't the Queen's Park Hotel. And so one couple with five children, or, or eventually five children, uh, he bought a piano. And he knew... Just like I just spoke of earlier with the books, he knew that the child was going to crawl to the piano. That could not be a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Somehow the brain is going to expand. Wise enough to know that that's what happens. Mm-hmm. So their musical education starts with that. Uh, Jeffrey's older brother, Bosco, is literally the source of all inspiration with anything Jeffrey did. Whatever Bosco did, Jeffrey copied. So the painting, that's how that started. The dancing, that's how that started. 
And under the circumstances, just the fact that they had a piano doesn't necessarily mean that anybody was musical. It just so happens that they were. Mm. Bosco very early on took to the piano and started playing, you know, Mozart and, and, and whomever. As a matter of fact, rumor has it, and I have no confirmation on this other than hearsay, but the Caribbean band leader, Lionel Belasco, apparently once gave Bosco piano lessons. This has been mm-hmm. unconfirmed, I have no idea, but in terms of music in the Caribbean, especially the early part of the 20th century, he was a pioneer band leader. Bosco took to the piano and Jeffrey followed in the sense that their their inherent musicality was formed very early. And the only reason why Jeffrey himself didn't take up playing the piano because that was one infringement too many on Bosco's. <laughs> He's like, you already took my paints. <laughs> exactly. And Jeffrey respected that. Yeah. Now, interestingly, Jeff, Jeffrey did not play the piano, but at the same time, he could dictate uh, whatever ideas he had, and he could rudimentarily play notes, but for all intents and purposes, he was still able to communicate to other musicians what he needed and what he wanted. Mm -hmm. Case in point, in the collection, or I believe in the collection, if not, there there should be, uh, and it's also available on eBay, there was a record released in the early 50s, uh, either titled Shango Hymns, or uh, Jeffrey Holder and his Trinidad Hubbingbird Songs of the Caribbean. The same album, different packaging. Most of the tunes of which are folk tunes, most of them sung in African-French patois, which wasn't necessarily the norm those days, and not necessarily a, a, a pop record, needless to say, is very, very raw. I happen to like it. Uh, it was in the days when Folkways Records, for example, was very popular um, with a certain set. Um, Alan Lomax, the, the kind of people who would go into the bush and record. This was recorded in New York City in a recording studio, but it still has this very, very raw quality. One of the tracks that's on the album is a mourning hymn, mourning as in mourning the death of. It's his own composition, and it's something that turns up in a lot of his ballets because it was a theme musically that worked for him, number one, and because as he's developing his craft, he has a tendency to sometimes cannibalize certain things. So he may use this in one ballet, and then if that ballet is never going to be done again, he may take that out of that one and put it into something else to fill it, because actually this, this makes sense here. His ballet Banda, which is uh, where the character of Baron Samdi comes in, for those who only thought that Jeffrey played Baron Samdi in, in the James Bond movie Live and Let Die, no, that was in his repertoire for several years before Live and Let Die was ever made. 
but he used that theme in that particular ballet. And at some point when he stopped dancing, and that ballet was no longer going to be done, he actually took that same theme, put it into Prodigal Prince, and backed it up with, of all things, Gregorian chants Mm. and drums. The combination of which was pretty astounding, um, how beautiful it worked out. So it's a theme that keeps going with him wherever he goes, wherever he uses. As a matter of fact, there was a movie made in 1961 or 63 called All Night Long, a British movie directed by Basil Dearden. And it's basically an adaptation of Othello, but taking place in the jazz world in England. And A lot of key players in the jazz world were in this or participating in this at the time. Uh, Jeffrey was in it, had a guest spot dancing, which was later cut out. But I am one of the few people who actually saw it before it was cut out. And I remember specifically his, his dance section. In his dance section, the jazz musicians... Uh, play that theme, play his theme. Mm. I actually have a 16 RPM recording acetate one-off of these musicians uh, playing that theme that eventually I'm I'm trying to get transferred, which seems to be very difficult because it's a really fragile item, but it's one of those things that's eventually going into the collection. But all this said that Going back to the original point, his musicality developed early based on the influence of his brother Bosco and has always remained with him. Now, interestingly enough, parallel to that, my mother is also extremely musical uh, to the point that there was one crossroads in her life when she was in her mid-teens where she could have either followed the track of becoming a concert pianist or a dancer, and the dancer took over. This is something that I only learned within the past 15, 20 years. I had no idea. But it makes sense because she, too, is extremely musical. And her mentor was extremely musical and exposed her and all of his students, including Alvin Ailey, to other cultures and music and whatnot. And the Lester Horton Dance Company, for example, the students did everything. They built their own costumes. They built their own props. Anytime they did music for the ballets, they were the ones playing the ballets, playing the music, be it banging on gongs and tin cans or strings or whatever. The fact of the matter is that that responsibility to find your own musicality came to both of them very early. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And you can see that in the work. I mean, you can see how the movement is an embodiment of the music and the work. And that's why they work well together. Yeah. That's why they could finish each other's artistic sentences. Mm -hmm. You know, they had a shorthand that even in older age, it was just something, it was immediate not to blow smoke, but I'm blowing smoke. My mother was a muse, and she was a muse to a lot of choreographers, and anybody she worked with brought 
the best out of them, and certainly with him. And their musicality was was such that they understood. And so with all of this exposure, and because he was such an open mind, he's not one to just take, he seeks. So it's not like he sat down and said, okay, what, el- what else do you have uh, for me to listen to? He sought out records. He was the precursor of the kind of people who look through records in basements these days, to go, <laughs> but it's not for collection value so much as it looking for inspiration, looking for something. At the same time, and this is also something that goes through his work, is his insistence on making sure that Black culture is presented with the same value as classical Western culture. Case in point, and you've heard him say this before, in terms of ballets, if Martha Graham can do the Greeks, what makes Haitian folklore any different? And so his point was always to be able to elevate his culture and Caribbean culture and African culture to the same level in terms of approach, in terms of presentation, in terms of uh, being taken seriously. It's an uphill battle. It's always an uphill battle because, the, it, for the most part, with the Western world, anything labeled ethnic tends to take second in command because, well, or third place, because for all intents and purposes, it's seen as something we do naturally anyway. And it isn't. Right. (laughs) Yeah. That work becoming part of the canon feels like what, and Jeffrey did say that many times in interviews about Haitian folklore, mythology, the power of that imagery, the coloring, the full-bodiedness of the storytelling was, I mean, equally, if not more, if we have to compare it to any stories that were being told by Western ballet choreographers at the time. And, and yeah, that, I think that was, that was a really empowering thing for me to see in the collection. Just Jeffrey's ideas about storytelling didn't really stop at a medium or stop at a, a one way of thinking, like you were saying, the kind of going through the records for references type of curiosity and imagination that he brought to any work that he did. Oh, that makes me very nostalgic, very lonely for Paris, most beautiful city in the world. This is Jeffrey Holder over WOR Radio, 1440 Broadway, New York. And a very nice letter from a gentleman, Mr. Howard Fink. I hope you're listening. The answer to your letter is yes. Made me so curious, too, about him starting this radio show on WOR because he's introducing... New York listeners to a wide range of music and at the same time kind of needing to balance I guess the appeal of commercial listening to those same 
listeners. You know what I mean? A little bit of background on that. So how this all happened, and excuse me if I go into some kind of these shaggy dog stories to get to the point, but it's all so interesting. We start out with the fact that Jeffrey, for up to the point that he was maybe 23, had a crippling speech impediment. Could not get it out. Couldn't. Couldn't speak. It's hard to imagine. As a matter of fact, strangely enough, I discovered not too long ago that I still have, that I'm trying to get transferred as well, an acetate recording of the outtakes of that folk album. And just him talking with the crew and talking with the singers and whatnot. And the, 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 and now I'm doing it. The stutter is definitely there. And this was something that when, you know, he spoke or when he performed that cease, a lot of stutterers stutter no more when they sing. So when he was singing, he was fine, which is why, you know, he had nightclub act. Anything involved with performing itself is when somehow your brain just sort of like goes into cutoff mode and it just gets it done. But day-to-day talking is not, was not his forte. Somehow, once he broke through the stammer, of course, he had a deep voice, but nothing had really ever done about it until maybe 1967, where a very good friend of his, an actress named Paula Lawrence, whose husband was a Broadway producer, his name was Charles Bowden, she recommended him for a voiceover spot, which led to a commercial for BWIA, which was like the, the, the Caribbean airline. And the campaign was talking, was this exotic, deep voice talking about uh, islands you'd never heard of, the unheard island. I, was, I have an island to, to describe to you. It was a thing that actually this caught on, and somehow that led to the WOR show. WOR was a radio station. It started in like 19 in the 20s, and it was a mixture of talk and sports and music, but as opposed to today where every station is branded by the type of music they play back in those days... It, Louis Armstrong could be on the uh, um, uh, in the charts <laughs> one month and and knock the Beatles out of uh, out of first place. It was that type of world back then. Mm-hmm. But there was something referred to as middle of the road or easy listening music. And W O R when it played music was more or less the easy listening in the easy listening mode. A lot of Montevani and, you know, nothing particularly edgy. And so you throw Jeffrey into this mix. They offered him the spot, and is he going to turn it down? No. Um, And the opportunity to more or less play everything, anything he wanted, needless to say, he was going to go to town. Now, the other thing about the voiceover that I have to give credit, and I have to give an explanation to, one of the ways for him to really develop this voice and this manner of speaking, especially once the radio show started and once the voiceover started, was that 
Bosco's mother-in-law, back in Trinidad, Bosco's mother-in-law, personality named Auntie Kay. Auntie Kay was a pioneer broadcaster in Trinidad, and she had her own radio show, um, and it was a variety show involving kids, and because she had been uh, raised in England, aside from having the Caribbean whatever, there were lots of English inflections, and so for all intents and purposes, she spoke the Queen's English. Her voice took on a musical quality, almost sing-song quality. Jeffrey used that as an inspiration uh, to the point of not mockingly, but taking that to the next level and using it for his purposes, which then comes up and comes down. Now, it took him years to perfect this. And in the radio show, because for all intents and purposes, he's a fish out of water. This is a new medium for him. It took a while to get that really going. So the earlier tapes, if I remember correctly, are rather, he's still rather stiff. And interestingly enough, some of the letters, you know, fan letters are, are, are interesting because, you know, it, they, they come from all sorts. And some of these people are absolutely nuts. And some of these people have nowhere to go. And some of these people are very opinionated. And some of these people are very uh, happy to have it. Anyway, you get all kinds. And some of the people would write and say, mm, you need to work on this. You need to work on that. Not, not all of these people were crazy. And the fact of the matter is that First of all, he did keep all these letters. But more important is you see development. So by the time the show is over in 1972 or whenever it was over, he, he was a well-oiled machine when it came to this. Once he was given the opportunity for this radio show, it was not only a chance to play whatever he wanted, but his sense of juxtaposition and where this comes in again with the equivalent of rising our culture, you know, at the same level of the Greeks or whatever, he found absolutely no problem with segueing from Edith Piaf to Billie Holiday or to Aretha Franklin, for that matter, or put Aretha Franklin at the same level as Leontine Price. He would just as soon play Bill Evans, the jazz pianist, as he would Josh White, you know, it, it was never just one thing. And <laughs> the audiences back then, I mean, for, especially for WOR, let's face it, the typical audience for WOR back in the 60s was middle-aged white retirees, <laughs> for the most part, or older people or whatnot. And strangely enough, his presence then attracted a new group. Because not only of word of mouth, just because, you know, back in the day when we used to say colored on TV and people used to flock, you know, you had opportunities like that. At least it would get your attention enough to at least listen once to see what's going on. And some people stay, some people go. On Wednesday, October 15th at Philharmonic Hall, Lincoln Center. Leading personalities including B.B. King, 
Senator Eugene McCarthy, Josephine Premise, and Jerry Herman. I will also be there. I will be dancing with my wife, Carmen de Lavalade. We'll be sharing an evening for Biafra. I am going to put on my dancing shoes and entertain you as well. A lot of people think that I've given up dancing. I will never give up dancing, even when I'm 80. Breaks his own heart. But the fact of the matter is that it did increase their listenership. One where one place it really did increase was in 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 the Caribbean listeners, because he would play music from home. I was there when he interviewed Sparrow, for example. I was there. I was in the studio for that. I vaguely remember that, and I remember him playing Mass in Brooklyn, and you know, but and people love that. Well, people love it. People who were, you know, people from the islands who were living in the city, you know, there weren't too many opportunities to hear that there, let alone on a station like this. So it was all inclusive. Now, this doesn't mean he didn't get a lot of blowback. For as different as the world was then, there are certain things that are constant, and you have crazy people with nothing to do who sit in their basement apartments and even though they did not have internet, they wrote letters back then. And instead of writing emails and tweets and, and things on Facebook or whatnot, they literally wrote handwritten wrote letters letter. to say, I am not down with this. A lot of people didn't like the idea of changing the format from easy listening to all of a sudden a lot of black music is being played or black, black artists being played. They got a lot of that. They got a lot of that. Uh, it took all kinds. And there were some people who were literally crazy who would also write in. I mean, there's, there's one letter in there that he goes into like CIA conspiracy theories because he happened to play Joan Baez. <laughs> the, the, the letter starts out, well, you see, you play this and you play that and, that and I have a thing, but then you play Joan Baez and Joan <laughs> Baez is a communist and then there's like two pages of conspiracy theories on the CIA and FBI and you were expected to get that. But then you get somebody from Trinidad who, you know, it's like they're, they're linked to home from listening to Sparrow or listening to, 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 to whoever, whomever else he, he would play. The folkies got into it at one point because they wanted him to play all folk and stuff, but he played a lot of that. So the folkies didn't like him playing Leontine Price. The crazies, uh, the hard right-wingers didn't want him playing Joan Baez or Pete Seeger. You know, strange thing about Pete Seeger is, they, I mean, they have, they have a connection going back to the 50s. You know, we tend to think of Jeffrey, I mean, he's lived, you know, he lived here most of his life. So for all intents and purposes, he's American. But the fact of the matter is he was an immigrant. Even though there are one or two letters from Pete Seeger in, in the collection, which are lovely, by the way. I was really honored to find them. It's like, oh, my God, this is great. The fact of the matter is that a lot of people warned him to steer clear of Pete Seeger because in the 50s, you know, we were still in the McCarthy era. The threat 
of association with somebody like Pete Seeger was the threat of potential deportation. So you had to kind of be wary. Now, he continued about his business anyway, but the fact of the matter is that those are the kind of things that hang over your head, especially when you first come to this country, and it's happening now again, that kind of association. Uh, you know, but for example, Odetta was a close friend. I mean, Odetta was the soundtrack to one of my mother's uh, most prominent uh, signature uh, ballets that he choreographed. And what blew my mind later in life was the fact that these recordings I've again I've grown up with all my life I was with in practically every rehearsal ever done of this thing so I know mm-hmm. this music better than Odetta did almost what's interesting is you look at the credits and who was her bass player Spike Lee's dad uh, you know so the connections <laughs> the connections with with culture and history right. they just even run indirectly that's what's that's what's great about this family if i can you know if i can take pride was and you've heard me say this before and this is becoming like a trademark phrase with me they didn't pass through history history passed through them and it's like there are connections with everybody everywhere and not just oh i i don't do this to name drop as much as I try to make cultural links so you can better understand them and you can better understand the scene, you know, that they were in. Does that make sense? It does. And, I mean, even talking about the political connections with McCarthyism and uh, Jeffrey and being an immigrant, the politics of the time influenced how artists move through the world at that point, and they still do, how we all move through the world, but how artists express it. And there are some articles that Jeffrey wrote that feel like they, through his writing, were coming across as this is what is, this is what I see as what's going on in the black theater community, for example, or, you know, this is what I've uh, learned and and been connected with with Josephine Baker, and she's saying that this is what she sees going on in the black performance world, and those those are important connections. Joe Baker taught him an awful lot, but a lot of what she taught him, he learned from her before he even met her. He and Bosco followed her from, you know, there were, in terms of idols... In terms of Bosco and Jeffrey, they both, you know, the two big ones are, 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 are Catherine Dunham and, and, and Josephine Baker. And both of those women taught them about showmanship as well as solidified the belief that their culture, too, can be, can, can be presented in a theatrical way on stage, in a respectful way on stage, in a glamorous way on stage. Mm-hmm. The, the impact of Josephine Baker on the two was so devoted. Josephine Baker got treated around the world 
in a way that Lena Horne didn't get treated here. You know, think about it. We think of Lena Horne as this glamorous MGM star or whatever. MGM never made movies for Lena like the French made for for Josephine Baker. For Josephine yeah. Baker. I mean, all fetishes aside. But the fact of the matter is that it still put her on a pedestal. And America was a little short on putting Lena on a pedestal. And so, you know, by the time Bosco first worked with, with Josephine, and she took him to Saint-Tropez and, and, and whatnot, as a matter of fact, Bosco taught Josephine several songs that she eventually used in her act. Mm. One in particular called Don't Touch Me Tomatoes. Bosco taught her that. And, she, and it was in her repertoire forever after that. And she did a little act based on that thing. She would come out with a cart and with, uh, uh, um, with fruit on it, and she would toss pieces of fruit out into the audience and do this whole, this whole... It was remarkable. You have to understand that I am still thrilled at the fact that I was able to see this every night in person. Ugh. <laughs> You know, uh, it, it it gets exciting. And again, it's not so much a name drop, but who else am I going to, you know, it's like, who else can I tell? Yeah. This is how it was. The fact of the matter is that all these different influence shaped Kim. So when it comes time, for example, to present music to the world, it's not just one sided. It is not just one kind of music. It is all around and it is all international and again, nobody, but I mean nobody, but Jeffrey Holder at that time would play Aretha Franklin and Edith Piaf back to back and follow it up with uh, uh, Leontine Price. And then there were his interviews. And in some cases, some people had never heard of these people. In some cases, to be perfectly honest, he interviewed Leontine Price and there were plenty of people who had no yeah. idea who she was. Which was amazing to me because I actually listened to her music after reading some of those letters, and I, I was so surprised that I didn't know who she was before then. Mm-hmm. You know, and she had been married to William Warfield, uh, who was a major opera star in his own right, and he, he uh, played the, the uh, Paul Robeson role in the, in, in the, the, remake, the, the 50s remake of Showboat, wonderful man again beautiful artist uh, you know again history passing through you mm-hmm. uh yeah he interviewed sparrow he interviewed bill evans i remember bill evans too because i'm pretty sure i was there for that um he interviewed eartha kitt and that yes. interview got a lot of backlash from listeners because i think <laughs> As, as far as I can tell from the letter, she said Jesus Christ, which I, yes, <laughs> which yes, yes, made yes, some people yes. very upset. Oh yeah, no, you know, again, all the all the prototypes of of the the people that we have now that protest this or that, they were all back there then too. It was the same world when it came to that, and so yeah. He would get lots of complaints about that, and you have to understand, of course, that Eartha Kitt is already like a lightning rod for anything controversial. Right. And she had that famous incident 
at the White House, which was blown way out of proportion, deliberately. She didn't make Lady Bird Johnson cry. She made people a little nervous because here she is at this big society function and saying, but yeah, you know, there are kids like dying out there. I'm paraphrasing, of course. But the fact of the matter is she did make the point which did make people uncomfortable. And then it, by the time it hits the post or whatever, it's Eartha Kitt makes the first lady cry. And a lot dried up for Eartha. And as legend, you know, tells, Jeffrey was the one who brought her back for Timbuktu. Man's oldest, boldest, most fantastic fib In the beginning a woman and sometime thereafter man and then came Which the then resets. I mean she could still find gigs here and there, but it was nothing like and Timbuktu helped reset her career. And again putting her on a pedestal. A rather campy one, but still, the fact of the matter is, this was, he made Timbuktu as a, specifically as a vehicle for Eartha. This is Jeffrey Holder asking you to stay tuned for the news, and I shall be back shortly with more delicious music with a beautiful W.O.R. Behind the Archives is produced by Lalu Rowe, Nick Twimlow, and Jacob Chisenhall, who is also our editor. Music created by Sister Sai. We are grateful for the continued support provided by our colleagues at the Rose Library, including our director, Jennifer Gunter King. Special thanks to Leo Holder, Anika Austin, Laura Starrett, Elizabeth Roke, and the Emory Center for Digital Scholarship. For more information about Rose Library in our other podcast series, please visit us at rose.library.emory.edu. Follow us on Rose Library's Instagram and other social media, and please share with your friends. You can find Behind the Archives on all your favorite podcast feeds. Join us next month for the second part of this exploration of the rich artistic lives of husband and wife, Jeffrey Holder and Carmen de Lavalade, which will focus on letters written to Holder from de Lavalade as told by their son, Leo. 